Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 72. Glad you could join us. Today, Bonnie and I are joined by Colby history teachers Anne Engstenberger and Aaron Anderson. In today's episode, we take a deeper dive into Colby's history program. We explore developing the skills of engaging primary sources and understanding historical context. We discuss how this approach increases the students' understanding of the overlap of history and their daily lives and the importance of being participatory citizens. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. Well, it's been a minute since we've done a deep dive into some of the Colby curriculum. So we're going to fix that today and visit with two ladies from the history department at Colby Academy, Anne Angstenberger, the department chair, and Erin Anderson, who teaches a number of classes online. Welcome, ladies, to the Colby cast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome both of you. I've heard lots of good things about you, ladies, and been looking forward to talking to you. I'd love to get to know you a bit better. So, Anne, let's start with you. Would you tell us a bit about yourself and your areas of specialty? maybe how you came to Colby? Um, sure. My name is Ann Angstenberger, and I have been working for Colby since 2014. So this is my eighth year with Colby. Um, and I started working with Colby because I met Megan Langle. She was just starting the online school, and we happened to be at the same parish in Atlanta when I was living in Atlanta and our children at the time were in the same preschool. And she had said, I think you teach for an online school. Am I correct? And I actually had been. I had been teaching for an online school since my first son was born in 2009. So teaching virtually way before it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she said, I'm going to need to use your expertise. And would you, you know, have any interest in teaching for the school that I'm, you know, starting up? And that was it. That was the beginning. So I started teaching ancient Greek history that first year when I started teaching, which was actually the second year of the online school. And then right after that became the history department chair, eventually took on teaching history 12. Um, and Aaron was already teaching that too, teaching the ninth grade honor seminars, and then now teaching the history 12 honor seminar. So just kind of run the gamut of the high school uh, classes. And I think you asked what my area of specialty would be. Um, well, definitely now I would say ancient Greek history. Prior to teaching that, I wouldn't have been. But now eight years into teaching it, definitely um, it's a specialty and an interest. And then just like a personal I would say area of interest would be colonial United States and then Western Europe, 1700s to probably 1900s. That would be my favorite areas to teach. I, what, what about that period makes it so particularly interesting to you? Well, I think I have this, it's an additional interest, but it's definitely related to history, but a special interest in art history and architecture and just making that connection on how culture reflects society at any given time. And uh, I've been very blessed to have traveled abroad and to study abroad, particularly in Western Europe. Um, 
in college, I studied abroad in Brussels, Amsterdam, London, Paris. My family lives in Belgium. I've spent summers in Belgium and France and just really connected to that culture. So I feel like I've had kind of a firsthand, um, been, been thrown into that culture and very blessed with that. So that's why I have an interest in that time period. That's understandable. Fascinating. What about you, Erin? Uh, so I've been teaching for Colby since 2015. I remember contacting Anne, who many people know because I think I do mention it in a lot of my classes that Anne and I were college roommates. Oh, uh, and we both studied the same disciplines in our undergraduate degree. We were political science and history majors. Um, and so I frantically, I think, texted her that I, I need to get back into teaching. Uh, you know, there's a part of me that's missing in my life. And um, she had told me a little bit about Colby and thankfully they liked me. <laughs> and so they, they gave me a job. And so the first year I taught history uh, 12, which is U.S. modern in modern history, um, as well as a middle school history course as well. So I, I've taught a variety of things. The History 7 middle school course is a world history focus, Western Civilization 1. Um, and then I also, obviously, the History 12, which is an upper level advanced history course. And then I also um, taught American Civilization, which really focuses on um, the essentially the new world in North America and also what's going on in the independent state of Mexico. So I was able to actually write the course plan for American Civ. So it is a, it is a little near and dear to my heart. Yes. Um, I'm not teaching it this year, which I had to, it's like having a child graduate mm -hmm. and go to, you know, go on to things, had to pass that baby off uh, to, to someone else. But uh, yes, I've always been interested. My favorite, if I had to pick my favorite aspect of history, obviously I would have to say uh, U.S. history. So I, in college, when Anne was traveling, I traveled to D.C. That was the furthest I went uh, okay. from California. And I did um, an internship on Capitol Hill. So I got to work for one of my local congressmen. And uh, one of the best parts about that job, other than realizing I didn't want to go into politics, was that I loved teaching history and I loved giving tours to the congressman's constituents that would come in. I'd give them tours of the Capitol building. I'd tell them all about the history and the statues and architecture, all of that. So that's kind of how I got into teaching history. And I still love it today. So your enthusiasm is evident. Oh, uh, yes. Quite inviting, <laughs> inviting. <laughs> Is it, what's it like to switch back and forth between teaching the upper level and the middle school? Is it like light switch kind of thing or is it pretty, is it less of a, is it less of a leap than it might seem initially? You know, it's interesting in the course of the year, I feel as though the gap gets a little narrower. <laughs> the seventh graders uh, in the beginning of the year are still many of them trying to understand uh, just, you know, what works best for them as a student, right? How they study best, um, how they um, manage their time appropriately. So some of those kind of uh, aspects to being in school are obviously a little bit different for 12th graders. You know, they've 
they've been accustomed to things that work best for them. They've been accustomed to what their instructors are expecting in terms of paper writing, for example. So I think we close that gap a little bit towards the end of the seventh grade year, Um, but it's been very neat because I've gotten to see some of my seventh grade students and how much they have changed. And um, as then 12th graders, I get to see them in 12th grade. It's it's really neat. So there's a lot of growth there. That's cool to see. That is neat. I love hearing how you guys go way back. That is really fun. And you guys have kept in touch all, all since then. That was going to come out wrong all these years. That was going to come out. So since then, you all have kept in touch. And, it is and all together. That's neat. <laughs> I know. Today, I was actually sitting down yeah, and thinking, neat. when did we first meet? And we met in 2001. And I thought, that's yeah. been 20 years. That is longer than our students have been alive. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was really kind of an aha moment, um, thinking that we, you know, met in college. We would sometimes take classes, every class together. We would walk to class together. Uh, we were in the same sorority. We lived together. Oftentimes, we would go to mass together. That was one of the things that connected us: our Catholic faith. Um, we remained friends in graduate school. We were in each other's weddings. We just saw each other last weekend with our children, our husbands. They, you know, it's just a really unique friendship that I'm, I'm really blessed to have. So, neat. What a gift. That's really neat. Absolutely. Well, let's take a deep dive into Colby history and government curriculum. We had the pleasure of speaking with Therese Prudhoe early on in the Colby cast season on episode 15. It's called Asparagus Moments, where she was talking about the Colby history curriculum and its emphasis on primary sources. So let's have a little bit of a refresher though on the importance of primary sources, that the emphasis that Colby places on those. But also sometimes we tend to zero in on that and we lose track of the other options that exist for the history curriculum that Colby offers, including some of the other courses in high school that are options for students. So would you mind refreshing us on the importance of primary sources and the role they play in the Colby history curriculum? Uh, I think to start, it's really important to remember we are based in a classical education, um, and that's really about that rich content in the works of, you know, classical works of history, literature, theology. And oftentimes those texts are based in the ancient Greek and Roman tradition and those primary sources that I would say one can argue are the bedrock of Western civilization. So generally speaking, it's really acceptable to start with that classical curriculum, reading Herodotus, Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, St. Augustine, um, all of those primary sources. But as you mentioned, you know, we do have other options for many of our students. We do have secondary source classes where they use textbooks, um, but those textbooks are very, very rich also. And they are also based in primary sources that take a look at speeches and documents and newspaper articles and letters and pictures and art and architecture. So the secondary sources that we have chosen as a school really are also based in primary source documents too. So it's kind of the, the best of both worlds. It seems so interesting to to do that to get the uh, perspective of 
of the times, really. I mean, so good historians can bring that through, but it's, it, it seems so wonderful that you can actually hear what the people at the time, well, or shortly after, closer to it than we are, how they viewed things and what their perspective was as well. I, I just think that's really fantastic. Right. And ultimately, you know, our goal is to have our students learn how to think independently, how to engage and answer open-ended questions. Think about why did an event happen the way that it did? What was the historical context of that event? Not just regurgitate dates, you know, focus on the historical content of the time, you know, perhaps in that moment, it was an acceptable event, whereas through the lens of our modern day, it might not be an acceptable event. So we really try to look at all parts of the of the history. Yes, absolutely. I, I would chime in with that as well. Um, and I think being able to look at the primary sources allows, again, students to really independently analyze the document in the context of what occurred. So what comes to mind is in History 12, for example, when we read Captain Prescott's account of the Boston Massacre, right? And it's this event that's taken and really uh, made to, you know, seem really kind of bigger than it was. But when we look at the primary source document, you know, it was a, a skirmish. It wasn't something that was entirely prompted by the British Redcoats at the time. And so we're able to really analyze that event and look at the primary source and say, you know, how was this kind of used? How does this fit in with the bigger picture of what was going on in the colonies at the time? And I know in other history classes, uh, certainly my own history classes that I took as a child, we were more given the facts of what occurred, right? We, we weren't necessarily, it was someone else's account. It wasn't the actual person that was there. And so I think that really gives us a very good perspective, obviously, of what occurred during the time. So, sure, many of the uh, of the things that Kobe students read, some folks would be quite daunted by that and think, "Wow, they're reading that at at this age. How do what are they going to? How are they going to get anything out of that? Are they even going to grasp that?" So, are there typical reactions students have as they're reading these primary sources from the beginning? What what types of reactions do they have? Well, I can speak to the ninth grade class, and we start right off the bat with, I would argue, the hardest high school text <laughs> that we read, Herodotus. <laughs> and it is full of very challenging topics. It is full of lust and sin and death and uh, wonderful events and war. It is uh, the full gamut of you know historical events that could happen. And it's a challenge. It is definitely a challenge to read, but it is the best primary source that we have of that ancient Greek time period. So there really is nothing else to choose from. We have to read that if we want to have any information from that time period in Greece. So the students say, well, this is hard. These are hard topics. I can't believe I'm reading this. But we spend the time, we talk about what is most important. We make the connections between the past and the present, and eventually we get through it together. And I think it's just a great exercise for those 13, 14-year-olds. And by the time they're 17, 18, it's not as challenging as it was three years before. 
I always joke with my History 12 students that the true law of free monarchies, King James's uh, speech about the divine right of kings, is nothing if they've read, you know, if they've taken uh, ninth grade ancient <laughs> Greek history there, they'll be completely okay uh, in terms of getting through that. And they and they love to complain about it. Oh, Mrs. Anderson, how could you assign us this? Uh, but I try to pose it as a you know, this is a challenge, right? Who is up to the challenge? We have to dissect what King James is really trying to get across here. Um, and so it, it seems to uh, get them excited about it, <laughs> if that's possible. And, you know, we oftentimes have to point out to our students, history is his story. And we can make it like a story and really make it almost... Um, theatrical, but how amazing that this actually happened. And I feel like maybe we're just history nerds, but I get very, very engaged with my students and they get excited, they get engaged. And it's not as hard as you might think if you really enjoy the topic. And how challenging, I mean, I'm, I just finished up Ron Chernow's biography of Grant, for example, which I just loved. And so I mean, there, I've got somebody that I trust who's going through and filtering through, you know, pages, well, not pages, but thousands and thousands of pages of things and putting together this image of a character that ultimately makes sense. Is it difficult when you're using the primary sources to, to kind of help the students put the broader picture together? Or do you think that's, that actually helps when they're getting the, the immediate perspective of the contemporaries? Well, I think I could just start and then maybe Erin, you want to address afterwards, but I think it's good to read also biographies, um, you know, other contemporary writers that analyze historical figures in the past and get opinions and perspectives. Uh, and we can point out our own bias, but also go back to the primary source, what actually happened. Um, and I think that those type of sources really give us the, the broad picture to help our students uh, engage and talk and think and articulate what actually happened. Yes, I would chime in and agree with you on that. And it's so funny you mentioned the, the Chernow biography of Grant. I, I oftentimes hold up the Alexander Hamilton uh, Chernow that I am trying to make progress on with my <laughs> students. And I say, please don't complain about your you know small reader assignment that you have this week, because look at what I am trying to get through. Uh, and, but yes, to speak to Anne's point, I agree with that. In, uh, especially in History 12, which for seniors graduating high school, going on to a, a variety of, of different paths, um, challenging them to really understand some of the texts that we read, in particular, the Paul Johnson's Modern Times. You know, he does have a very strong opinion that comes through, but we are able to dissect that and say, that is his opinion. Here's his evidence for that. What, what is your opinion and what's the evidence for that? And so the primary sources, I think, are very, really helpful, incredibly helpful to use um, when formulating how students are coming to their conclusion, their opinion. And, um, you know, kind of putting that in the frame of reference, if that makes sense. So that's always a, a good base to go back to. So. Makes a lot of sense. So let's pivot just a little bit to the new government course that Colby has begun offering that last year was their first year for it, right? 
Um, will you tell me some more about it and for whom it is intended and things like that? I can go ahead and start since um, I teach that course. I was able to slightly steal that from Anne. Um, <laughs> she, she had been campaigning for that course for many years, uh, asking Mrs. Langell that we should have this course and that this course is crucial. And um, she let me essentially kind of take it. So thanks, Anne. Uh, for that. But um, the government course is a semester long course. So it, it was first offered in spring semester of last year, and then it's offered in the fall and then again in the spring. But it's the same half year long course, if, if that makes sense. Okay. And um, what I like about the government course is that it highlights really three very pivotal points in U.S. history. So as compared to the History 12 course, the U.S. Modern History course, that is examining intellectual movements, uh, events in Europe that are contributing to the founding of the United States and, and the government, why the framers and the founders selected these options and what they were influenced by. The government course focuses on that first part being, so there's three parts. The first part being uh, the first really test of this unification of colonies, right? Why they came together uh, and how that looked. The second major test, which is, okay, we've won this war of revolution. We've won our independence and freedom from Britain. Now what do we do, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> you know, now we actually have to set up a government. Um, so what's that going to look like? So we go through the Articles of Confederation, which is kind of the first attempt to really come up with a government that's not going to infringe upon the rights of the people, uh, ultimately get to the Constitution. And then very uniquely, and I would argue very appropriate for our society today, is uh, you know, the tests of the union, right? And so the first test of the union ultimately being the, the civil war and how the United States emerged stronger than ever after the civil war. And then also what the union has to face for us now going forward in the future, right? What every generation um, faces in terms of uh, obstacles to our I guess, cohesiveness as a people, as an American people. So obviously, as you can tell, I love it. I love mm -hmm. this course. And I always, I want everybody to take it. <laughs> um, but yes, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm very excited about it. And gets to hear my enthusiasm often about it. So. No, oh, I love it too. I mean, I, love it. I, I know that um, you had asked who is it intended for, and it's kind of a unique, mm -hmm course who is who is it intended for and i would say everyone right every single student should be taking a government course with that specific focus but it it is i believe an elective so it's not necessarily something that is required for their diploma or graduation um, and given that it's also a one semester course you know that opens them up to take other electives on another semester where they have an opening and additionally, I'm thinking just trying to promote, you know, down the road, possibly having the other semester be an economics course, which we we don't have right now. But that would really be the great balance to having a, a one semester government and then a second semester economics. 
haven't really figured out if it would be macro or micro or perhaps a little bit of both. Um, additionally, my passion would be an art history course. Um, we also now have a philosophy course. So we really have these great options for semester courses that are kind of historical electives, but really tie into our whole you know, history curriculum. They'd benefit all, all students. <laughs> They certainly sound like it. Is it is there overlap with the government course between the government course and one of the other Colby courses if students are on a sort of a traditional progression of the history courses ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade? I could say I could argue or say yes. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, okay. With the history twelve course and uh or US and modern history twelve. Um so a, a few of my students are in my US and modern history course and also in my government class uh, first semester. So there is some overlap in terms of, again, just these themes about unification and tests of the union. Now, we don't get to tests of the union until second semester in History 12, where it's more prominently towards the second half of our first semester in government. So I would, I would urge 11th graders, 12th graders, there is a huge component about what not that ninth and 10th graders couldn't enjoy that as well or take up that call, but what, what are graduating students, what are young adults, how they can contribute towards being a participatory citizen in government, right? It, and there is that encouragement that we um, are in this together and that we have a duty really to participate in local issues and things like that. And so there is I don't want to say a call to arms because that sounds quite, um, you know, violent, but a, a, an encouragement. And I think Anne could agree with that as well. I mean, we talked about that, that there is this call for them to participate in government in, in a variety of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and thinking about the upper levels, the 17, 18 year olds, this, we are really preparing them to enter into society and, trying to, to give them the best well-rounded approach to being active in the community. Um, so it would, it would be wonderful for everyone, but perhaps some of the concepts that you learn in government would be a little bit more age appropriate for, for the older high school grades. It seems so wonderful because the, the U S government is such a, a result of all of those thoughts and different things that have happened, you know, from Roman times going forward or before Greek times going forward. So it's really wonderful and so valuable, I think, to be able to kind of focus in on that and be able to see how we got to where we are today and how, you know, well, at the start of the country and then moving forward, what caused those the different things to change and such. That's seems really valuable. It certainly does. And it seems very timely and uh, practical. That's great. I'm, I'm really glad it's happening. My father-in-law was a college professor and taught um, philosophy was his thing. But we, I would ask him, well, what's, what are the best students coming in to learn philosophy when you're teaching at the college level? And he said, universally, the students who have a good background in history and literature, because with history, you really see kind of the consequences of actions. You see it gives you this vast experience that you wouldn't normally have as an 18-year-old, especially when we've got 18-year-old voters here today. Um, and literature, likewise, gives you this vast experience of, of more maybe an interpersonal level, but of decisions. And so, you know, 
giving you a bit more uh, toward the realm of ethics, I guess, or, or understanding those things than you can normally have. So it sounds like it's exactly what you're talking about here, that, that they're, they're getting ready to, to be a citizen, to be part of an active citizen, be part of our, our country here. Yes, absolutely. And even just thinking about their ninth grade and 10th grade and reading ancient Greece and ancient Rome and talking about those governments and how they really established how we took it as, you know, the Western world and made it the government it is today. Um, often my 12th graders will think back to, oh, I remember when we read that in Plato and look at how it changed, you know, 2,000 years later. Uh, so it's really all interconnected, even to modern day. Absolutely. I always tell my History 12 students that we're not just going to talk about history. This We're going to talk about theology. We're going to talk about philosophy. We're going to talk about religion. <laughs> A lot of different things, because all of those play int integral roles into this history picture, right? So we also try... Um, sometimes more successfully than others, to work collaboratively with some of the other departments. So Mrs. Crawford, for example, who teaches English, she and I love to collaborate during our second semester when they're reading 1984 uh, and we're talking about Red China and the Mao movement. And so there's, it's, it's, I believe, fun for the students and really that much of a richer experience because they're you know, examining these perspectives in multiple different classes. Well, I'm excited. I'm very, I was excited already. Now I'm even more excited to have, to have them progress further in these studies, to, to have these courses with you and, and, and canvas these topics as well. And you've made reference a few times already, and I, I was hoping we'd be able to get your thoughts on teaching U.S. and modern history in our present circumstances. And uh, maybe if you have any encouragement for families in that area or things to keep in mind. Erin, um, we, we could start with you on that if you'd like. It's a topic that comes up quite frequently and has really spurred some very interesting conversations in class. And to speak to Anne's point earlier, she had mentioned that we're not teaching the students what to think, but we're teaching them how to think. And I like to see my History 12 course in particular as, as one where students can express their opinions and talk about things that they're seeing in the world around them. I want them to, going back to that active participant role, I want them to be interested in it and I want to hear from them. Um, I want them to feel like they can um, you know, speak what their particular view is or um, you know, why they, they think a certain way. I think it can be really challenging in the given time frame that we live in. Again, going back to those primary sources, I think that's why we actually benefit at Colby because we are a, a classical school that focuses a lot on the primary sources and being able to look at the primary sources and say, this is the truth of, of what happened, right? We have the, this record of, of what happened. It's not against someone's opinion. It's not a media spin. It's uh, you know not something we're hearing on various news, radio, et cetera. This is the actual you know, events as they unfolded. So I think that it's also important for my students. I encourage them to talk about it with their parents at home. Some of the things that we discuss in class when, you know, somewhat sensitive topics come up, you know, I, I want them to talk with their parents at home or get their older brother or sister opinion. I want them to really be able to have kind of a free 
discussion about those things. And I know Anne uh, in the History 12 course as well, we've talked about how in recent years, it's it's been a little bit challenging in terms of you know, some of the things that we are hearing and seeing um, outside of our class. So I don't know if Anne wants to speak to that more, but. Yeah, I mean, in all truthfulness, it's been tough the past two years, <laughs> to, to be quite frank. You know, the reality is it's been a very politically charged society in general. Um, we've had a you know, pandemic that has been like a once in a century pandemic. We've had a summer of violence. We've had vandalism. We've had crime. We've had riots. We are living through an election year and, you know, really recognizing the the consequences of elections for good and for bad. Um, and it's created a heightened awareness of individuals' viewpoints and uh, teaching young adults, 17, 18 year olds, you know, there is a different um, manner in which we really can't ignore, you know, their age and their, they're very interconnected with what is happening in the world. It's almost like we can feel it. It's very tangible in the classroom. Uh, it's weird because we're not physically with our students, but when these topics come up, uh, we can almost feel that they want to talk about talk about the issues. And naturally, thinking about modern history and talking about these, um, the challenge to authority, challenge to status quo, challenge to economic theories, socialist revolutions, the protection of human rights, globalism, protests, the government's role in protecting human rights, or lack thereof, in, you know, in society in general, it's all so relevant to our historical content, but also their life. So it's natural that they do want to talk about it. Now, with that being said, you know, as Aaron mentioned, it's something that needs to start at the home. So we always do try to, you know, to keep that in mind. And one other thing that I have found really helpful in the past couple of years in general is that whenever something seems to get a little sensitive or a little heated, in the discussion, uh, or I can tell it's going down a path that might get uncomfortable for some students, we can always go back to the church. That is the one thing that as a class, as a school, we have. And I just will throw it out there. I will say, well, what would the church say about this? Or as Catholics, how would we feel about this issue? And generally, right then, we all get grounded and it brings us back on track to you know, where we are. So I, I think we're blessed. It's a benefit that we have in our church and in our school. And like Aaron said, too, another part of that is just looking at the primary source. Um, that is, that's a way to bring us back to reality, too. Absolutely. Like, just to carry a uh, chime in with what you said, uh, our faith, right, is something that unifies us. Absolutely. And so when we bring it back to that thread that ties us all together, we all come to the same conclusion, right? Or tend to come to the same conclusion. Despite what people feel about different topics, especially with regards to racial equality and you know, post-reconstruction, civil rights movement, in government, we talk a lot about, um, obviously, the Civil War, and then we talk a lot about the civil rights movement. And 
We contrast a few different civil rights leaders and Martin Luther King and his uh, focus on nonviolence and his focus on treating each other as we want to be treated. The golden rule comes through, right? So there is this element that does unify all of us. And we all come back to that very base, if that makes sense, um, and are able to view the rest in, in context of um, the events as they unfold. So I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, it sounds like you've got two anchors, the most solid one, of course, the church with the rock, but then that historical background, seeing things as they were. And I see that so often today, unfortunately, that instead of trying to see what things were like in context at the time, there's seems to be a push to kind of either close our eyes and not see things as they were, just cover them up, or and also just to kind of have extremes, black and white. So yes, this person was bad because he said this, but when when you're doing history properly like you are, then you see it's things are usually complicated. They're nuanced. So complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and it goes back to this human nature, right? I mean, we, we as humans have free will, we have the ability to choose. And some of my students, especially my younger students want to say, you know, is this a bad person or a good person? And it's, you know, it's much more complicated than that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. um, and mentioned earlier, putting that frame of reference on history being his story, right? We have to put that cap on of living in the 1780s, living, you know, right. We have to understand uh, what the frame of reference is, right? And we can't look back and say this person is wrong, wrong, wrong. You know, um, that's just not the the method that we, how we view history. So, if that makes sense, I cut you off, Anne. No, no, no. I'm. It's all. It's all related. I'm. I was just wanted to add that you made me think of one of my very favorite speeches to teach and um it's booker t washington's speech you know at the atlanta exposition it's always been my favorite thing to teach in u.s history but the past couple of years it is even more <laughs> you know i really love teaching that day you know he's giving this speech in atlanta 1895 and he's telling african-americans cast down your bucket you know right where you are focus on improving your situation at home don't want run away from your problem problems don't focus on your grievances you know act in a charitable manner work hard earn respect participate in your government participate in economic growth have respect for all of society it's kind of the precursor to mlk and the civil rights movement and I just feel so blessed that we're able to do this for our students and give them these engaging and thoughtful discussions that you don't get everywhere. So we, we have the church, we have these sources, and it might be difficult, but um, it, it's a good problem to have <laughs> that we're able to do that. Very helpful. Along those same lines, do you have some resources or ideas for families studying civics and government at home for maybe the younger students. You know, it's so funny. I've had a few students in class say, Mrs. Anderson, I remember the preamble because of Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> <laughs> and they they sing it in class to order to form a more perfect, you know, they're singing. And I think to myself, 
man, that's a great <laughs> idea. Um, clearly their parents have exposed them to some schoolhouse rock um, and, and that <laughs> stuck with them. <laughs> but it, it's all silliness aside. Um, I am a big promoter of obviously primary sources. And so there's there's actually a lot of different um, websites, um, archives, National Archives has just a wealth of information. I mean, some of that, they do have some sources for like more high school based students, but they do have some younger, more geared towards younger students as well. Um, the Library of Congress obviously has a lot of um, the Smithsonian. I've pulled things from the Smithsonian Learning Lab, but I, I again, am obviously biased towards the primary sources. So the National Archives just has so much information. They have they have a huge uh, depository of scan documents, but they also have little lesson plans that are geared towards younger students. So I've used those before. I don't know if Anne can speak to any other ones. And I know she that's out of her wheelhouse a little bit because she's more of that ancient Greek ninth <laughs> graders, but um, I've used those before. So I think those are great. Uh, not, like I said, archives, Smithsonian, Library of Congress. Um, Good deal. Yeah, National Geographic has some as well. So, okay, yeah, I've used all of those. Um, and in addition, another one that I found as a helpful resource for our U.S. and modern history class is the Constitution Center. They their website so constitutioncenter.org. Um, it's very interactive, similar with the scanned documents of the Constitution, um, the preamble, the Declaration of Independence. They also have quite a few virtual museum field trips that students can take. And that, that would be very age appropriate for middle school level students. Um, they have activities for younger students in terms of crafts based on civic national holidays. So that's really fun, like Flag Day um, or even 9-11, you know, all, all of those civic holidays. Um, another one, so this is a little bit outside of U.S. history, but the Catholic Textbook Project, which, you know, we use those wonderful textbooks. Once a week, they post This Week in History. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but that's a really yeah. fun thing to look at. And once a week, it's a short lesson that they post based on a historical event. Um, you know, for example, like this week in history, JFK gave his uh, Ask Not speech and it would have a whole, you know, historical analysis of it. And then at the end, some sort of connection to society, music, art, literature, the social response to that event. Um, so that's a fun thing that families can look at. And then, you know, just thinking as a parent um, and a teacher, but as a parent, too, I really think it's important to get active in your community um, with your parish. I I'm really blessed that our local parish has scout activities and community service activities that really expose children to be involved in their local government services, meeting with police departments, meeting with fire departments, attending town council meetings, um, doing community service projects with you know their peers, showing them what the needs and services are and available in the community. That's really preparing them for their civic duty um, and their responsibilities as, as human beings, really. So we can do that at a young age. We could do it even at five years old, all the way to 18, to adulthood. We've, we've found in our family, it's, we, we, taking advantage of those grandparents and great aunts and uncles has been a, a wonderful thing as well. Um, I know my 
my daughter, who's just a freshman in college this year, but when she was in high school, my wife's grandfather is still alive. He's, he's a World War II veteran and it's about a hundred years old, but he oh. sat down with her and told her about what it was like to be going into the war and what, what it was like being a soldier in Germany at the time and leading, leading his men and all of the different things. So I know that for them just makes it completely concrete and kind of opens up this wonder of the world is so di- was so different just, just, you know, 80 years ago or a hundred years ago, I guess maybe, but um, so that was, that's been really good for our family as, as well. Yeah. You reminded me just last, a few months ago, um, my husband was, he, he was putting on, he's the den leader for my uh, third graders scouts. And he asked our neighbor, who's a Marine vet to come over and talk about his time in Vietnam. And just that discussion, showing his uniform, showing that involvement really got these eight and nine-year-old children engaged. And part of our school mission as Colby is to prepare students to be Christian leaders and active and think about the past and how it's related to today. So it doesn't have to be just in the high school level. It can be little things like that and embrace the community around you, even your next door neighbor. And I even think that, you know, having my students or my children come with me to vote, that is something that I've always done and I will continue to do. Just show them this privilege, this right that I have as an active community member, as an American. Yes, absolutely. I, and I was going to chime in on that too. I, I love to tell the story to my students in class that um, a, my husband and I were able to live in the Washington, D.C. area for a few years. And so we got to visit a lot of the different museums. And I dragged my children to Monticello and Montpelier <laughs> and to Jamestown and Williamsburg. I have all these pictures of them, you know, very angry about it, um, but <laughs> dressed up in armor at Jamestown because it's a living museum, right? And I wow. and I just love to show my students that, and they say, "Oh, Mrs. Anderson, I feel so bad for your kids." Uh, you know, and but there are so many other. There are I've noticed as well a lot of different interactive field trips, and that Anne had mentioned that earlier that that families can do, or if they're physically uh, close by, that they can get out and and check out and see. And I love it when my students go and do that. I've had students living in Northern Virginia said, Mrs. Anderson, my family and I went to Jamestown, I, you know, and I, it just makes my heart sore. I love it. I love it. And so, but yeah, there's interactive virtual field trips. I'd love for people to get out physically and go and tour museums and see these artifacts and see how people lived. And that's really what makes history come alive, I think. So that too. Yeah. I know that our school community has a lot of, um, on Fridays, they do get together with home, other homeschool families. And that's a wonderful way to perhaps take some historical field trips um, and really make that a priority when they have that opportunity to, to have that living history experience. So you utilize that as well. Ours do that. We, we've made a few trips to the one-room schoolhouse. A few, a few of them now, which was not an experience that I had as a student myself. But now I've been to a couple. And it's interesting to hear them just live the day as it might have been, as we think it was, and hear them explain perhaps the difference in the Pledge of Allegiance that they recite at the beginning of that day that they, than they would now today. So things like that, it's interesting to kind of bring it to life like that. But, yeah. 
Well, this has been such an interesting and fun conversation. It's been great meeting you both. Please come back and talk to us again soon on the Colby Cats. Thank you thank for having you. us. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Colby Cast in your favorite podcast app to ensure that you don't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Admayorum Dei Gloriam.